Welcome back to Wonderland at Frank. I am Bridget Antoinette Evans. And I'm Tracy Van Slyke. In this episode, we're going to talk about pipelines for artists, but enter the conversation through the lens of comedy. We're going to hear a Frank talk from Zara Norbrakash, comedian and pop culture collaborative senior fellow. I remember uh, the first time that I came into contact with Zara's work. And, you know, I think we, we thought, oh, she's a comedian and she's funny and talented. Let's sit down and figure out, you know, what she might need. And I remember we were sitting in this coffee shop yeah. and we asked a question about her career. And she started analyzing telling the story of, like, all of the barriers and gauntlets that you have to actually confront when you're trying to make it as a comedian through the traditional route. And it was so absurd. It was just so ridiculous to imagine, particularly comedians of color, but basically anybody who wasn't a white guy in his 20s and early 30s with some disposable income could make their way in that system. And so then she started to talk about like the alternative routes. We walked away saying, how do we actually help her to get this out into the world so that more people can start to really grapple with it? And so we invited her to join the collaborative as a senior fellow to just start pulling it out, pulling it out of her head. And we just knew that what she had to bring to bear was incredibly important to the future of comedy, quite frankly. And so I feel like this talk was the first iteration of her public articulation of that analysis. Her analysis was shaped and informed by her time as a pop culture collaborative senior fellow, where she interviewed dozens of other comedians and studied the barriers and opportunities for diverse stand-up comedians to have success and sustainability in their careers. Her talk accompanies a new report that she produced at the end of her fellowship called Funny is Funny. And after we listen to Zara, we're going to call up Joey Clift, a comedy writer and stand-up comedian, to respond to her analysis. So here's Zara at Frank. My name is Zara. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever said the words, I'm not that funny. Good job, you're being complicit in white supremacy. (laughs) I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm trying not to quit stand-up comedy. Give it up for me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) The bar and stand-up comedy circuit is the only pipeline to the development of commercially recognized, successful comedians. Thousands of other comedians like me need an alternative pipeline, not just for the sake of our careers, but because the future of culture depends on it. I've been a stand-up comedian for 15 years, but I would say my career in comedy began when I was uh, five years old, uh, protecting my mom from hate crimes. Uh, My mom wore hijab in the 80s. Uh, back when wearing a headscarf told people that you were Iranian and a hostage taker. I remember this one time there was this guy that came up to us uh, at a grocery store accosting her to say, why do you hate America? And I slid between them with a box of Lucky Charms cereal. 
And I said, please, please, please tell her to buy me Lucky Charms. <laughs> She's an immigrant. She doesn't understand. Every kid gets it in America. <laughs> They're magically delicious. <laughs> and he laughed and said, you do not need more sugar. <laughs> Listen to your mother. That was my first experience of being a foil. I started stand-up at, at UC Berkeley at the Iranian Student Cultural Organization's talent show. I told these stories about my dad. And this is the story that I told. When I was growing up, my dad was always on my case. One day, I brought home an A-. minus. Immigrants in the house? <laughs> Diaspora? You do not bring home an A minus, right? I love it. There are all these, like, uh, I call them chads, uh, cis, straight, white men in the room. They're always like an A minus, but you're trying. <laughs> Did you have fun? Did you learn something? <laughs> What I said to the Iranian parents of the talent show was, uh, I brought home an A minus, and my dad said, What the shit the hell is this, Seth? <laughs> an A minus? Minus? So I went and I studied and I brought home the A. He said, What the shit the hell is this, Seth? <laughs> an A? Why not an A plus? So I went and I studied and I brought home the A plus. He said, What the shit the hell is this, Seth? An A plus? Why'd you take such an easy class? <laughs> I wanted to do stand-up comedy for real. And when I performed for these like Iranian community events, they wouldn't let me talk about politics or sex or religion. They just wanted to hear about my dad's struggles. Meanwhile, in the stand-up comedy circuit, they just wanted to hear my dad's accent. So who can tell me what makes up a joke? It is. Wrong, haha, ha, you fell for my straw man. <laughs> this is actually the definition of a joke. Establish a shared context that generates anticipation. This is what we love so much about comedians and social justice. Now you deliver a surprise that has a lingering impact that ideally alleviates tension. But here's the thing, who's tension? And what context, what shared context? What happens when you don't have a shared context with your audience? What happens for a lot of people of color and people who identify as LGBTQ, people who are women, people like me, is that you rely on stereotypes because stereotypes are an easily accessible cultural reference with built intention. But there's no winning because when you use a stereotype, then the other chads at a comedy club see it as a kind of cheating because it is pre-crafted humor. To me, the most important thing that I want you to take away from this for uh, this talk, and you should have me back again to talk more about it, <laughs> is this idea of context and shared context. When a white man gets on stage, then he begins at anticipation. He has a culturally shared context for patriarchy. He's on stage with a mic. We get it. Everyone's paying attention for where he's headed. When I get on stage, everyone wants to know where I come from. 
it slows down the joke. So what happens to a lot of people classified as other, seen as other, or whose narrative is further from the heteronormative experience of a white man, is that you get relegated to the theater and college circuit. You create a one-person show where you have some agency over your narrative. You can reframe it. Because there's no time to do that at a bar, because at a bar you're being judged by other chads who attend a bar and are looking at your tempo and how tight you are. When I started out in stand-up comedy, I did it because I didn't want to be in politics. <laughs> I was so sick of politics. I just wanted to be able to be silly. I wanted to be Corey Feldman. <laughs> but here's what happened, and here's where I got stuck. This is how it was for me. There's all comedy, there's showcases, but all of them are functioning under the same narrative expectation that I'm going to explain where I'm coming from to my deficit with an audience because they want to know in order for me to be able to move forward. Otherwise, I get this guy after a show. Hey, so uh, how come you didn't talk about being Sicilian? <laughs> are you not proud? I'm proud. <laughs> talk about my identity, I was handed so many questions to answer on behalf of all Muslims that I was not prepared to do. I was not politicized. I didn't know how to wield these conversations and write jokes at the same time. Here's the thing. To become a comedian, you have to perform for five minutes, five nights a week for two years before you're seen as a legitimate comedian to other comedians in your city. That's just to other local assholes. <laughs> You all gather at a hub, a comedy hub, the punchline, the improv, etc., where you're able to uh, perform stand-up for two years, then four years, then six years. You get auditions, then eight years. You actually get an opportunity at TV staff writing gigs. Is everybody doing some fast math? Five minutes, five nights a week, eight years. Either you're a double agent, you quit, or you're drinking the Kool-Aid. So I'm here to tell you that we need to expand this talent pool. There is no alternative pipeline. When I left for the great escape into theater and one-person shows, what happened was my material morphed for the translation of a theatrical stage and a theatrical setting and audience. So that comedy bookers then looked at me and said, well, you're not doing the formula that I know, that I can book, that I can tour. What comedians need is what Jerry Seinfeld has. People of color, people who identify as LGBTQ, cis woman, we need fail-safe studio time where you can just show up. It's not self-produced. It doesn't matter if you fail or not. And you're there with a cohort of like-minded individuals, right, who you don't have to constantly establish your context with. You can find what the joke is, what gold comedy is doing. Development language, mentorship, career prospects so that you know that this investment that could go to medical school or law school, these eight years, is going into comedy to go somewhere. You need the ability to mentor. I think that if we do this, we can really create this pipeline. We can build this pipeline into a kind of stand-up comedy that incorporates social justice. It's so easy. We so can do this. I'm doing it. I have a comedy special called On Behalf of All Muslims, a comedy special. Thank you. It's debuting in June. I pitched it in June of 2015. It's debuting in June of 2019. Talk to me, let's work together, let's find how we can create this bridge 
between access for people who are in theater, performing in theater, to be seen as comedians. And that, in part, begins with the way that we see our senses of humor and how it is being shaped by a sense of white authority and that standard on comedy. Thank you. That's my time. Thank you. Wow. And this speech was just the tip of the iceberg. You can read Zara's full report at popcollab.org and find the links in our show notes. Especially as comedy has become such, it's always been a big part of our culture, but I think with streaming channels like Netflix and Amazon, like comedy specials have become just like have had built their own space in the pop culture landscape. So who has control of those jokes? <laughs> that that was really important for why Zara's talk and her also subsequent report was really important to bring out into the field. I'm really excited about the conversation with Joey Cliff. You know, I've had a number of opportunities to just witness his work from on stage, and he's brilliant. He has both a deep awareness of the comedy space as somebody who's been writing in this space for so long and performing and producing, but also I, I think there is something that is a commonly shared knowledge about people who are disrupting this closed circuit, who are disrupting this pipeline that was really created for a certain kind of person in our culture, and really looking at the different ways that you can be yourself, have authentic voice, uplift the specific humor that you possess and that may come from the various intersectional identities you have, you know, and have a career. We called up Joey to talk about Zara's work. So to start, Joey, we're wondering if you can tell us what jumped out for you the most about Zara's talk. So um, what jumped out to me the most about Zara's talk is how accurate it is. I feel like what she described um, is pretty much exactly what's happening with Native American people in the entertainment industry and Native American people in comedy. And then um, where I disagree slightly on what Zara's saying, and uh, we're friends, so don't tell her I said this. This isn't being recorded, right? Um, uh, (laughs) uh, Where I disagree slightly with Zara is she makes the point in the talk that the club circuit is kind of the only path to, as a comedian, getting writing work, booking roles on TV shows, getting like, you know, featured spots on late night shows. I would say that it's probably the easiest path, but I don't necessarily think that it's the only path. Like, I, I do know that there are a lot of other people that have created comedy with more of like kind of a social justice bend kind of outside of the club circuit because they've been tired of that or just, you know, auditioning for stereotypical like person of color roles. And in creating their own content, their own web series, you know, their own podcast, they've been able to like kind of skirt around the club circuit and, you know, made breaks, getting really great acting roles, getting, you know, spots on late night shows. It's not impossible to do it outside of the club scene. It's just harder. Joey, what about your own experience getting into comedy? 
What was that road like, and what were the barriers that you felt like you were confronting? So, uh, like, my path into comedy was, I guess I would say, weird and kind of winding. Uh, When I was in high school, I really liked making people laugh. I knew that I wanted to have a job doing something comedic or something performative, but, like, I'm Native American, and there's not really any Native American comedians on TV or in the media that, you know, you can easily point to as a teenager in a small town in Marysville, Washington. Because of that, I didn't really think that I was allowed to work in comedy growing up. So I went to college to be what, to me, like, was felt like the next best thing, which was to be like a small market television weather guy. You know, like small market weather guys, you know, like they get to like crack jokes here and there on the air. And I was like, oh, that's how I will get paid to crack jokes. So I went to Washington State University. They have a very good college TV program. While I was doing that, I did a lot of college TV stuff, did a lot of stand up, did a lot of radio, college radio and stuff like that with the attitude of like, oh, this is going to prepare me to be a weather guy in like Post Falls, Idaho or whatever. My my professors, fortunately, like right before I graduated, kind of pulled me aside and said, hey, it's very clear that you want to work in comedy. You know, you could just work in comedy, right? And I was like, what? And then they were very kind and they sent me up with a couple of college alumni who lived in Los Angeles and were executive producers, showrunners. That hooked me up with kind of my first job in LA, which was being what's called an executive assistant, where you're basically like kind of the personal assistant to two executives that run TV shows. And um they gave me a lot of tips to, um, you know, just where to take classes, where to get involved, to start a career in comedy in Los Angeles. That led me toward a place called the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, which is an improv and sketch theater that, like Saturday Night Live uses as kind of a farm league. And that basically led to me getting a lot of my first, and I mean, even still, like a lot of my writing jobs come from people I did shows with, at, you know, midnight Friday bit shows at UCB or whatever. And meanwhile, I saw a lot of really great Native American talent who were doing a lot of really great stuff in exclusively Native spaces, kind of Native American-themed film festivals. There's a really great Native American um, theater group called Native Voices in Los Angeles doing a lot of comedy on what what I think, for lack of a better term, would be called like the casino circuit, Um, like doing a lot of um, really great stand-up shows on reservations, the tribal casinos, kind of, you know, tribal gatherings. And for a lot of agents, managers, and like Hollywood executive types, these people aren't necessarily going out to these uh, casino circuit shows. So you're finding yourself in a position where like, there's a lot of native talent out there doing great stuff. They're able to like, pay the bills a little bit with comedy, but they're just not put up for, you know, the big money, big exposure jobs that like, uh, straight white dude taking UCD classes in Los Angeles might be up to. I saw like a very specific disconnect between, you know, like me getting a lot of jobs from other people that I was on sketch groups with at UCB and like that allowing me to progress in the industry. And then, you know, like all these really great other native performers that were kind of just doing stuff in native spaces that it felt like they were kind of stuck in a closed loop. So for me, it's like, how can I like use my position to get natives in these positions so that they can kind of be, be put up for a lot of these just standard alt comedy jobs that aren't native specific. So I put together last year the first ever showcase of Native American comedians at UCB. UCB's been around for 20 years. They'd never done a showcase of Native American comedians before. It was on Columbus Day because when else would it be? And um, for me, like it was great. It was a sellout. It was a really big success and it was a great show. 
but also it gave all these really great native comedians, writers, actors, and et cetera, the opportunity to be able to like put UCB on their resumes. Does the industry feel different to you now than when you first got it start? It's not just around diversity, but sort of the ability for diverse voices, especially native voices, to sort of make uh, a mark in the comedy scene, how they enter. Or are you seeing like it's the same old, same old and not much has changed since you got your start? I'm a really optimistic person, so I think that um, in the you know nine years at this point I've been in Los Angeles, even in that time, which isn't that long in terms of the entertainment industry, I feel like it's gotten a lot better. Last year, we had West Studi on stage at the Academy Awards. That was the first time ever there was like a Native American presenting an award at the Academy Awards. 2017, my friend Lucas Browneyes, a super funny Native comedy writer, sold the first ever Native American family comedy to a network. Every year, I feel like we accomplish more firsts. I even find in my own career that over the past few years, I've had a lot of meetings, pitches, and have been hired for a lot of jobs where people have told me, you're the first ever Native American person that I've met with, hired, taken a pitch from, whatever. There have been a lot of people that have worked really hard in Native Hollywood that have laid the groundwork for a lot of us to get the headway that we've gotten, enough ground that's being broken every year. I think that we're going to start to see like a lot more Native representation in the media over the next probably a couple of years. Like I wouldn't be surprised if there was a native TV show on TV in a year or two years or three years. I, I, I'm seeing a lot of decision makers in Hollywood being more hyper aware of, Oh, have I only taken meetings from like white people this year or like, Oh, like the room that I've hired is only straight white dudes or straight dudes or cis dudes or only people of the specific type that sucks. And I should do better. I think things are improving. I like your optimism, but to hear you say that, like, as as awesome as that is, that you are the first, but that it's almost like you have to be perfect and there's no room for error. And that feels really hard to hear at the same time. Does that ring true for you? Uh, Being one of the few Native American people currently in the entertainment industry, I often find myself in a position where I'm like the first Native American person that an exec will have met with or taken a pitch from. And um, something that happens more often than I would like for it to happen is that the exec will kind of use it as an opportunity to like wring their hands together and be like, oh boy, I'm meeting a native person for the first time. I better ask him all my native questions. I um, had a meeting with a, a couple of execs and the first thing that they said when I was like, oh yeah, like I'm native, I'm an old member of the college tribe was, oh, that's really cool. What do you think about Elizabeth Warren? Like, without missing a beat. And it's tough because it's like, you know, I'm being put in a position where all of a sudden I have to educate these people about this very complex issue. Can't really be answered simply in, like, one sentence. Two, I've got to, like, try to impress them because they're an exec and I want them to, like, me and hire me for stuff. And, like, three, I've also, like, got to be funny. It starts you off, like, below sea level a little bit and you kind of have to, like, creatively like dig yourself out of a hole in order to kind of like accomplish all those things and also be you know a good comedy person you know it's not just that it's like i, I pitched a show earlier this year and the exec uh instead of engaging with my idea spent the entire time 
asking me like native factoid questions. How do you say hello in your native language? What's the biggest Native American tribe? I grew up in this state that's not the state that you grew up in, and there was a town near where I grew up with a weird name. Is that a native name? It's like all that I can really control in situations like that is how I act. I think it's also a thing for natives, like natives that kind of like leave the reservation for lack of a better term and like become like urbanized. I think that there is this pressure. You kind of know how things might not be great. So there is this real pressure of like, you're not just repping yourself, you're repping your culture and like you're repping like your people in a very real way. I just wanted to ask you, sort of looking to the future, you know, Zara makes a call for new pipelines or new development models so that more diverse comedians actually can make it into the mainstream. Are there other kinds of infrastructure, pipelines, points of energy, groups that you think really need investing in to sort of expand not only the kind of diverse comedians coming into the system, into the industry, but to have long-term career longevity? I guess that in the near future, what I want to see, I want to see a really great Native American digital series or TV show or film that's distributed by a non-Native platform. College Humor, Comedy Central, even Define American is great, be it Funny or Die, so that kids on reservations that are in a similar situation that I was in when I was a teenager, that like think that they're funny, but like don't really think that they can work in comedy can see something like that with like a bunch of native creators and a very clear native voice on it. And they can think to themselves, oh, a bunch of natives were able to make a Funny or Die series or a Comedy Central series. And then they can think to themselves, oh, if they can do it, I can also do it. As Joey is talking about how his career is advancing in comedy and how it's slowly advancing for a lot of other people, like very, very slowly, it's sort of marked with a lot of tragedy of like terrible experiences they've gone through and the continual discrimination inside Hollywood for a lot of comedians of color and, and different sort of cultural backgrounds. And so this pipeline both that he sort of has been investing in spaces to support and grow Native communities, along with Zara's sort of big idea for a lot of different diverse comedians, like really need a lot of examination, ideas around how to support, collaborate, because we what we've learned that it's often not about sort of repeating of what's already broken. For example, different fellowships that maybe place a television writer inside a writer's room. But that new pipelines need to be built by the artists who understand what the gaps are. Yeah, I have to say that, um, and to be like completely frank, um, a lot of the conversations that we're having artists about the really ingenious ways that they are working to kind of hack a system that's deeply flawed make me really exhausted and ultimately exhausted and 
angry because it's so much energy. There's so much labor to try to maneuver within this very kind of narrow pathway. I keep thinking about Alicia Garza. She said once, elections are really important, but elections will not get us free. And I feel like in some ways what we keep sort of confronting you and I, Tracy, and everybody in this work is that inclusion work is really important, but inclusion work is not going to get us free. I'm really interested in what it looked like um, for Indigenous artists in the industry to be able to create with entirely different assumptions about creative process, about story, about the, the power of story, the role of story. Like, what does it mean to be able to have, you know, almost complete or total agency, not just over your own voice industry, but over the process and mechanisms by which content and stories get made so that ultimately we're like in a different industry. And it seems, you know, impractical to be asking that question, certainly in the short term. But I, I, I kind of feel like if you're not, you don't just start asking the question every time we're in a conversation around pipelines um, now, then we're never going to get to a place where we are literally in a different ecosystem within the industry. We are always going to be like dancing in circles within constructs and with rules and expectations that don't fit the creative innovation um, of all of the different communities that that have something to say. So uh, I want to get free and I want to stop feeling so exhausted um, <laughs> about like the pinch and the squeeze of the reforming what's broken you mm-hmm. know, approach to change in Hollywood. Yeah, I think we can move past exhaustion into like excitement and the total imagination, uh, reworking mm-hmm. through our imagination and also knowledge of these new pipelines that are about not only cultivating and helping people get into these kind of industries and spaces, but helping them have long-term sustainable and powerful careers. So that's what's exciting once again about Zara and Joey. They're like putting it out there. They're trying to bust through and they are part of an ecosystem of artists and allies who are thinking at that level um, that I think in five to 10 years, we're going to start to see a wholesale um, sort of evolution within the industry and a whole new power base that's held by these different artists. That's my prediction. <laughs> write it down. Somebody write okay. it down. And we will all reflect on that in 10 years. So, Tracy, what's the big idea we want to take away from this episode? The big idea is that we need to not only invest in artists in developing content and narratives, but also to change the systems and solve the problems within their industry and potentially the world at large. Wonderland at Frank is a production of the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitali and Destry Sibley produced the series. Sound engineers include Matt Noble, Mike Gilmore, Eric Elterman, and Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. 
Our sound designer and engineer is Samantha Gatzik. These episodes were recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City, the Loft Recording Studios in Bronxville, and at WBEZ in Chicago. Special thanks to our friends at Frank, Jade Dozier, and Lauren Rawlings. To listen to other episodes of Wonderland and explore ways to build your own culture change strategies, visit our website at thisiswonderland.us.